Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Manifestation Mastery on Blog Talk Radio. Life-changing manifestations with your host, Sterling Meyer. another episode of Manifestation Mastery. I'm giving a piece of myself to you, and I'm so grateful that you're tuning in tonight. I'm your host, Sterling Meyer, Manifestation Specialist for over 20 years and the owner of GetYourLifeNow.com. For those of you who don't know me, I work with major corporations such as Google, Lifetime Channel, Hilton, Hyatt, and celebrity A-listers, as well as top social media influencers and individuals from all walks of life. So I'm going to give you this call-in number now, 516-387-1582, 516-387-1582. Yes, this is a live and interactive show, and I'm super excited about it tonight. I have... By the way, guys, I have a special invitation for you listeners. The weekend of March 19th through March 21st, that's three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'm presenting a crash course in Manifestation Mastery. And it's an intensive designed for us to deep dive into transforming all areas of your life so that by Sunday, your life will be unrecognizable. Kid you not... I deliver this every time so I can bring it. Be generous with yourself and give yourself three days to completely change your life. Doesn't that sound like a fair trade? So you can learn more on the website, getyourlifenow.com, and click on the event page to sign up or just call us at 213-700-3078. The website also has the number as well as email. So it's limited space, and we do fill up fast, so we encourage you to move fast so you don't miss out. Plus, you'll be saving hundreds of dollars. Yes. So I'm so excited about tonight's show. You are truly in for an interesting and thoroughly compelling experience because I know this for certain. This is a live show. So come on. Call in with questions. It's interactive. We're going to play here. He's one of James Bond's favorite villains that he loves to hate and Diamonds Are Forever. He's starred in over 45 films and hit legendary TV shows such as, you classic TV show lovers, you're going to just love this, Bonanza, Adam 12, The A-Team, Kojak, Barney Miller, Murder, She Wrote, Dukes of Hazard, Perry Mason, and Streets of San Francisco, just to name a few. And I visit these shows all the time. I love them. They're classic. They never go out of style. He's been in unforgettable movies like Chinatown, Walking Tall, CC and Company, Hard Times. Really, really, the list is so long. And... He's what I call <laughs> the original Crispin Glover, you know, Crispin for his roles in River's Edge and Back to the Future and Willard. Well, where do you think this guy, you know, that guy got his acting chops from? And when I first met Bruce, 
I was so amazed how much his son Crispin really, really took after him. Okay, so I am talking about the one and only Bruce Glover, a.k.a. the Dangerous Mr. Went. <laughs> He's with us tonight. So hello, Bruce, and welcome to Manifestation Mastery. Thank you for taking the time to be here tonight. There, Can you hear me? Bruce? Oh, he was here. Bruce, can you hear me? <laughs> well, if you can hear me, um, speak up. No, he was there just a second ago, guys. I promise you. Bruce? 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 Hello. Where are you, buddy? How'd we lose you? You know, this reminds me of the show I did with Harlan Williams. We had the funniest little connection glitch. He was there and then he was and then he was gone. But uh yeah, I don't know. Bruce, if you can hear me, uh I can't hear you. So if for some reason some snafu occurred and you can hear me, please hang up and call me again. All right? Um, so I am also going to just reach out and see where he is. So, and yeah, I'm going to ask him to call me back. So guys, sorry about this big introduction, right? And it's like, what happened? So I am uh, investigating. You know, it's it's live. These things happen. They do. Hello. Hello. Oh, there you are. Where did you go? I was here. It's just where you weren't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> could you hear me? Yeah, I could hear you, and you were just ignoring me because you're so <laughs> selfish. <laughs> I couldn't hear you. I'm so glad we got you here. Okay, perfect. So how are you, Bruce? Thank you so much for being here. Okay. So can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, I want okay. you to I want you to share with everybody. You know, I want to dive in here because we kind of lost a couple of seconds there. So let's just speed things up. We'll catch up. Tell us about how you first broke into acting. I mean, how did it start and why Why did you choose acting? Well, all of that stuff is obviously um, interesting uh, to me and to hopefully to the other people. But I had no idea I was going to be an actor. There was no way I was going to get into that silly stuff called acting. Uh, I was totally fascinated by movies and everything else. But in my tough guy, working class neighborhood in Chicago, being an actor was like saying, I'm going to wear a dress and makeup. You know, nobody, nobody that was a macho, tough guy like you had to be in my neighborhood was interested in acting. What I, But I had an instinct for it. And it was happening to me without my realizing it. 
Now, what I did have uh, that I could do was I was an athlete, and uh, I was a wrestler, a football player. Uh, I could play any sport you wanted. Uh, eventually, uh, in my later years, I became a soccer player and created two soccer teams and gave one away to an Argentinian buddy of mine and took both the teams into a league and we didn't lose a game every Sunday for three straight years until the league had to get better to match up to us. So acting was a, a weird thing, but I did have an instinct for it. Um, my father was very religious and forced me to go to a church, uh, Swedish Methodist Hell, Fire and Damnation Church, and... Uh, but they did a pageant one Sunday, and I was was like a a little kid, like three years old, and it was Joseph and Mary going from door to door uh, of these various places looking for a stable so she could give birth to Jesus. And I, I was the last place they got to. And I was like three years old and had a little barrel chest and... Uh, and when they got to me, my one line was, no room at the end. And when they got to me, I said, no room at the end. And the whole church burst into laughter. And I thought, wow, this is great. And so I said the line again, and they laughed even more. And then I said it again. And finally the minister came up and tried to catch me, and I raced around the altar and uh, through the choir chairs and Finally, he caught me and dragged me down the aisle and me yelling all the way through, all through, no room at the end, and he locked me in. So I knew I had an instinct for uh, getting laughs, which is what I wanted to do. And But I didn't think of that as acting. But um, there is, there is a, sometimes a... And also, when I was, my mother used to take me to movies, which were forbidden by my father, but she didn't care. She took me to movies. And I, I loved movies. And even around that same time, I was still around three years old, I saw FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, struggling to get to a microphone to uh, speak, and he had the polio. And I, that fascinated me. And I used to show my mother some of the p things we'd see in the movies. So I showed her Franklin Delano Roosevelt with polio. And she was astonished. And she said, well, uh, uh, do you love your president? And I went, uh, yeah, yeah. What I loved was getting into understanding what was going on with that person who had to do this way of walking. So partly uh, that is if I'm going to teach a person, I tell them that story. Because partly what you have to do, what I think you have to do, not all actors do it, is you actually have to understand what the character you're going to be playing is going through. So you have to make up, um, you have to not act, you have to become. And if you become the yeah. character, then there's no work to it whatsoever. You're just doing it and responding to whatever comes at you. 
And in a way, that ties in with what life is about. If you are going to survive this life, and we're all uh, survivors of our own personal hero's journey, and all of you out there are heroes on your own journey, and you have to make your own journey. Nobody can match anyone else's journey. But my journey was a very weird one. We were poor. My father had a little jewelry repair store in a loop in Chicago, and uh, I uh, got my first job when I was six years old. And I never didn't have a job from then on. My first job, I delivered groceries for 10 cents a day, so of six days a week. So I made 60 cents a week at the age of six. Somehow six was very important. Um, and uh, sometimes I would get a, an extra tip and stuff. But was what I used to go to movies and buy Hershey chocolate bars and uh, Chunks, chunks of chocolate. Uh, a movie in those days, you could go to the movie for seven cents, maybe eight cents, and then it started creeping up over the years, 10 cents, 11 cents, 12 cents, 15 cents. Darn. Anyway, um, the um, the movies were something that I was totally fascinated by. So I, I did have an instinct for it. But what I had to do was be capable of, you know, winning any fight that was presented to me, or at least being, you know, coming out as a tie. Uh, that's the way it was in those days. But I played football, but I also had an instinct for art. And this is what anyone of you who are listening need to look and find, your real instinct. If you want to be happy in your life, you have to find out what you really, really like. What, what is it in you that you must find out? Not what you crush in order to do something you're, you're forced to do. Uh, sometimes we are forced to do things. Um, so I, I in my childhood, from the time I was six years old, always had a job. I sold magazines door to door. I later became a, a, a delivery boy for a butcher shop with a bicycle. Um, I uh, even, at some point in my life, became a coal <laughs> delivery boy. Um, but I worked on the, my father brought me downtown in a loop in Chicago. So from the time of eight through maybe even before eight, he took me down there when I was, I remember I was so small. And, I, and uh, he took me down on the elevated train, a streetcar elevated train, and then right into the loop. And I used to have to make deliveries for him all over the loop. And then he, then he, I was offered a job on the corner down the street from his little jewelry shop, um, watch repair shop, and I made $6 for six days' work. I would go downtown every day after school. Um, I would uh, be, get there from any time. Like I would probably get to downtown about 3.30 after I'd traveled from the school and be there till 7 o'clock at night. 
and then I would go home, and I would go to school the next day, and then I would go again every day after school, and then I would work all day Saturday, and I made six bucks a week. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I love that you said? You said that operative word, which is you've got to find your passion. You can't let anything stop you. I mean, this is a show about manifesting your dreams, and you've lived an extraordinary life. You knew you had that instinct that calling to not ignore it. Don't let anything get in your way. No matter what you had to do temporarily, you stayed on the course. And that's what's so important. I mean, I'm sure it took a lot of courage and bravery at times. I'm sure there were challenges along the way. Necessity and intelligence to know what was dangerous and what wasn't. Sometimes you got into dangerous situations. Uh, Working on a newsstand, I remember... Uh, somebody had told some soldier, this was all during, you know, uh, I was in working from the, this time of uh, before the when Hitler came in. And uh, um, I and even the war had started. I was on a newsstand. But it, it isn't so much of, you know, uh, knowing that this is your passion yet. I didn't know that was my passion yet. The art was would came popping out. I remember um, that uh, I can remember my first drawing um, back in Chicago days when I was a little kid before the age. I probably again everything happened when I was three, but it was cold in the winter, and if you were outside you, and you needed to go uh, urinate you would um, have to go inside. And I remember we were in an apartment above the main house, and I had to climb up all those stairs and unravel all of that clothing in order to go pee-pee. And uh, one day I had seen a man go pee-pee on the side of the house downstairs. And I thought one day when I needed to, instead of going up all those stairs and unraveling all those clothes, I would go over to that same spot where that man had done it. And I did. You know, <laughs> I unraveled just enough. And I, I found that I was very excited about that. So when I got back upstairs later, I pulled out the family encyclopedia. I'd like to say the Bible, but it wasn't. It was a family encyclopedia. And um, I uh, drew a drawing. And my first drawing that I can remember doing, probably still around the age of three, uh, was of a house with a big smiley face and feet and a penis. And and the house (laughs) was smiling and peeing. So I wish I could find that uh, that drawing in an encyclopedia. If any of you have it, please send it to me. Um, <laughs> well, the courage and that bravery, though, I mean, of course, you know, you had these really, you're at a really young age you were working. But, I mean, you know, once you became an adult and you were pursuing the things that you were pursuing, you know, before you really made a name for yourself, you still had to be true to yourself. You still had to be 
true to your passion despite the the challenges that might have come along the way. So how is it, how would you describe your biggest influence in your life? I mean, how did they make a difference for you? Who would that be? Me. Me. Okay. I got it. So say more about that. Yeah. Well, what I, I, you know, finding your passion, it may happen by accident. And, uh, Sometimes it'll peek its way in, like my no room at the inn when I was three, and uh, or my uh, decision to uh, do a drawing. Um, and I never stopped doing drawings, and I am still doing art. And uh, I, I've done big paintings, little paintings, little sketches, and I'm working on an art book right now. And the art book would include... Uh, various areas of my life some of it would also uh, relegate become uh, I, I do abstracts also but I can do realistic things probably the first picture in my book would be uh, a picture that I drew with uh, what was something called crepos which was half crayon and half uh, um, chalk and I had bought that in Tokyo, and I was in the Korean War, and I was um, in an engineer company and uh, a cook. I was a cook in an engineer company, but I had uh, a sketchbook always, and uh, I was standing in you know, on a ridge looking down into this field with a bunch of Korean women working on the field, and then a Ten miles away, beyond the mountains in the background, the war was going on. And I was amazed by these beautiful Korean workers doing the work in the field. And uh, a lot of people, that's going to be the first picture in my book. It was 1963 during the Korean War. And I was this dumb GI standing there doing drawings of these women who ignored me, and they ignored the boom boom going on beyond the mountains. So that would be the first people. And people say it's a Vincent Van Gogh-looking thing, but I wasn't uh, influenced by Vincent Van Gogh. I was influenced by the people and uh, the surroundings. And uh, again, I just had to do what was there so whatever in your life is there let it influence you and overcome what's bad about it and but exist strongly enough to do it and if you get into the habit of taking on anything that comes at you eventually you figure out how to do it so you can get to the thing, something that you might like more but in the long run work is work and work is fun i like work in fact, you reach a point where work isn't work. It's what you're doing and what you're interested in and how you solve this problem or that problem. How do you make this garden grow is is the same as doing a painting in a way. Um, so there I was playing football in high school, and uh, I played on a city championship in Soldiers Field in 1949. I was part of a championship football team um every once in a while the acting thing would have popped in like i would do a 
you know, jump in, jump out of my seat and run through the the uh, audience in the auditorium at the high school uh, doing something that was a takeoff with some other buddy and or do a, a fake wrestling show because I was on the wrestling team. And there was always that instinct, but I didn't think of that as acting, and I just had the instinct for it. But what I thought, when I was looking at what I thought I was going to do to get out of this working-class niche, I also got a job at the age of 14 in a glass factory. I ladled uh, hot glass. I remember one point I was... I had lied about my age so I could work legally in this glass factory. And the one of the jobs I had, which I really liked, was I had a 12-foot long um, pole, pole with a scoop at the end, and I would go into a, a kiln of burning molten glass with this thing, and I would have to pull it out do a kind of a dance step, and then throw it up in the air about 12 feet into the opening for a $250,000 machine being uh, fed by a 14-year-old boy who only got burned part of the time. So <laughs> that that job, and I liked working in the glass factory, but reality was there. I mean, my best friend... The next year, when I was still working there at 15, um, I think I worked there at 16 also in the summers. But in the then at 15, I, my father's business uh, in Loop was going bad, and he called the family meeting, and uh, the meeting uh, suddenly all the eyes were on me. Um, but um, I I. Um, I, I was suddenly being told that he needed me to stop uh, school for a while and continue working at the glass factory because he needed money. And I thought, oh, my God, I was just, for, for the first time I was in a school where I enjoyed, uh, was enjoying being in school. Now, school for me had not always been my most joyful place, even though um, I had... Uh, I had a, a condition which I'll explain to you later, which uh, it, it, it has to do with something that is kind of interesting about how I discovered acting. Um, the um, at one point I flunked uh, my first first grade, and uh, because I didn't know how to read, but I I had tricked the teacher by being able to memorize what the words were based on the picture I was looking at, but I had not learned to read. And mm -hmm. then one of the teachers discovered I couldn't read. Now, there was a certain reason why this happened. So they gave me an IQ test and uh, to find out if I was, you know, a dumb, dumb dummy. And uh, I thought that I was a dummy because they gave me the test. And it turned out I had a huge high IQ but I didn't know that for years. I remember uh, probably around sixth grade, a teacher took us into the school library, and she said, uh, okay, all you kids can go to wall one, two, and three, and Bruce and Irene uh, can go to wall four. Well, wall four was the all of the um, 
the books for college and uh, beyond that. So, and finally I realized, wait a minute, I'm not dumber than everyone else. I'm smarter. So the first book I went to, oddly enough, was Homer's The Iliad. And we are all of us our own Homer on our own Iliad on our journey to find out where we are, like Homer had to do. And we, um, and then I, I remember taking out the original copy that was written on Ambit Pentameter, and I remember having struggled with that. But I remember the teacher being very impressed that the first book I took out was Homer's The Iliad. And I think I just picked it out because it had a pretty cover of a Greek helmet on it or something. And then I, I struggled with that thing, and then I brought it back, and then I went to a local library and found a, uh, a normal, uh, in English, version of Homer's Iliad, and I, it, but it was in natural English, and I read it. And then I went back to the school library and took out the original Homer, and I was able to get through it. And from then on, I read Homer's Iliad, every year for years and all of us are on our own Iliad each one of you listening is on your own Iliad and you stay on it because life is a journey and you can conquer anything by just doing the work you have to do whatever the work you're doing do the work and enjoy doing the work then it's not work it's fun so I um got out of that high school eventually, and uh, finally uh, they skipped me ahead because uh, the teachers thought I was smart enough to get me into high school and get me away from that dumb school where I was being bored because I needed more stimulus than I was getting there. So high school was great, I and I was playing football, and there was a city championship team, and I was offered football scholarships to a couple colleges. And... Um, I um, and I was also voted most most artistic of my school year class, Carl Scherz School in Chicago, and um, I, uh, I I uh, was surprised to find out that uh, I uh, was told by one of the colleges that they had looked at a couple of grades and told me I had to go to another college to prove I could do college level. Again, going back to that condition that caused me to get uh, an IQ test and all that stuff. So I went to a, a, a junior college in Chicago, and I played football on that team for two years, and we were always good, and I was a good player. And uh, and But I flunked English three times in a row. Is this because it, of the inability to read or your struggle with that why why did that happen well it wasn't an inability to read it was like the heck with reading i'll just i'll just memorize the lines so this weird thing goes i'm not going to go through all of that process i can do it this way more easily so there's a certain smartness that is involved with this it's not dumb it's skip the hard part and do it easier. <laughs> so I guess it's a sneaky area. But um, so I 
flunked English. And finally, the draft board caught up on me and drafted me for the Korean War, and which is where I did that uh, drawing of the women working in the fields, uh, ignoring the war, and women, as they will do, will make things better no matter what's happening. Thank you, women. I, <laughs> I'm very lucky to have known terrific women. I had a 56-year marriage with a terrific woman who I lost um, almost five years ago now. And um, we raised a son together, and uh, we had terrific times. But there I was in Korea. Now, I was there the last six months of that war, and then when the war was over, University of California sent teachers over to Seoul, Korea. And I was, my company was near Seoul, and the Army was good enough to let you sign up for college courses. So I picked up nine hours of college courses. And one of the courses that I picked up, of course, was I better take English (laughs) 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 to see if I can pass it. And I took the course and the teacher at the end of the thing, and most of the people in these classes were officers, you know, colonels and majors and uh, I think there was even a general in one of them. But uh, this teacher pulled me aside, very kind college professor from the University of California, said, Bruce, I don't know what it is about you, but if I go by the rules I, I, and your score on the grammar test, I would have to flunk you again. And he said, but you write beautifully. He had given out assignment to write Stories and I had written three short stories and he said you're you are skilled at writing you you have the ability but you don't have any you you flunked the damn grammar test well there you are I went to the easy thing for me was to be be good at it and the hell with the rules of how to do it I eventually I guess I kind of know grammar now but I'm not sure so he said. I don't know what it is about you, but I'm going to pass you so you can just get through this because you are not, you know, you don't deserve to be flunked out of English ever again. And I uh, am grateful for that. But it turns out that years later I discovered what the thing was that caused me to have, like, flunked English and get me drafted to Korean War. And, again, by the way, those things that are disasters quite often are the things that propel you into success. Um, your ability to overcome whatever things come at you are, are what make you the kind of person that can succeed at anything because you can endure and you can learn how to do anything. So some part of me, instead of bothering to learn grammar, I had read a lot of books and just knew how to write, and I did. And that's the way I still am. I'm still a writer, I'm, I'm still a painter, and I'm still an actor. So I can do any of that. I, I've taught acting for years. Uh, right now I don't have class anymore, and I had stopped having regular class and started doing privates. But now I'll still do a private online where somebody can get uh, a private acting lesson with me. By uh, uh, We work online. We work on the phone. Uh, we, I 
suggest you to do smartphone photos of yourself doing monologues that you have done um, that I give you to do, and we build up a demo, which is about the only thing I can tell you clearly would be useful for you to have a three- or four-minute-long demo so you could show it to an agent if ever the business opens up enough where there is a normal life going on, if there is ever going to be a normal life again. So if you want to um, get in contact with me, I have an email, and it's called real, R-E-A-L, Bruce, B-R-U-C-E, Glover, gmail.com. And give me, you know, and then there's a phone number you can call, 310-391. No, wait, 310-398-2539. And leave a clear message with a callback number, and I will call you back. So that number is 310-398-2539. And, uh, you can get it from from Sterling sometime in the future if you need to. Uh, you didn't write it down, and Sterling would give you a number to call. And yeah, in email. fact, I'm going to say this. If, if any of you callers listening right now, if you really want to ask Mr. Glover anything, look, this is your chance. So just call in, 516-387-1582, even if it's just to repeat what he said. <laughs> Given his phone number and email again. But, but seriously, 516-387-1582. You guys feel free to call. Um, you know, Bruce, okay, having no, that I, kind of a... Huh? I've got to interrupt you. We, we've yeah. got to get, we're at the sticking point where we... This thing that the guy... I don't know what it is about you, but you have uh, something that causes you to flunk grammar and write beautifully. And nobody knew there was this thing back then, and I discovered it later. And uh, I have a a Bachelor of Science in Speech with minors in psychology and uh, history and art and whatever. Uh, So I studied a lot of psychology, and uh, I studied uh, that kind of stuff. But I finally found and stumbled onto this thing that I had. It's called dyslexia. I'm a dyslexic, and mm-hmm. my theory is there are smart dyslexics and dumb dyslexics, and I turn to be a smart dyslexic. And dyslexia means you don't want to do all the little things. You just want to immediately do the great stuff. So you just jump to doing what is good. Instead of worrying about grammar, you just write great. And that's what dyslexia is. So some of you out there listening might be dyslexic, so don't worry about it. Let it be useful and just hopefully you're a smart dyslexic and not a numb one. Um, So at that time, I got back. And another terrible thing that happened that, again, the terrible things that happen in your life sometimes are the things that propel you into something good. I caught malaria in Korea. And when I came back, I wasn't capable of picking up a football scholarship at Colorado College, which also had a good art school. And I had to go back uh, to pick up a couple more college credits at a, at a junior college where I played football. And uh, I saw average – oh, well, by the way, before I left for Korea, 
Um, I used to work out with weights and stuff, and I worked out with Mr. Americas and stuff. And uh, I also a buddy of mine said, Bruce, you got a good built on you. You ought to go down there and pose at the Art Institute. That's the way we used to talk in Chicago. If you were a tough guy, you had to talk like that. If you didn't have a D's, Dems, and those accents, you weren't <laughs> a tough guy. So this tough guy went and posed at the Art Institute in Chicago. And there's a beautiful woman posing across the room. She was totally naked. I, I luckily had my jock strap on, um, so I couldn't show my. I didn't have to show my inefficiencies. Where the woman had to show all of her publicity, and uh, she came to me at the. She was totally naked, of course, and she came uh, to me at the break and said, "Bruce, how would you like to?" And I, and I went. My mind is going like you, like you, like you, um, because she was. <laughs> and uh, and then she said, "Be a gorilla." And I thought, "What the hell is this? Is this some new Chicago uh, sex act that you have to do?" <laughs> Turned out she was, she was a stripper, and she needed a guy strong enough to wear a hundred-pound ape suit and toss her around for fifteen minutes in a strip club, and. I, I thought that sounded like a dignified thing to be doing. So <laughs> I went to meet the owner of the act, and he gave me the ape suit, and he told me to go down and meet Bushman uh, at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And um, when I got to the zoo, um, there I went to the, the, um, the gorilla house or the ape house, and there was a famous gorilla named Bushman. He was down at the far end of the thing, and I was watching him, and there were people in front of the place, and he was magnificent, and I was down with the chimpanzees and stuff. And then finally the people cleared out, and I went down in front of Bushman's cage, and Bushman looked at me. And I thought, that's interesting. He's looking directly at me, and there's nobody else around. And he suddenly said, Bruce, Bruce, and I was astonished that he actually said my name, and he said, Bruce, don't tell anyone I can talk. I went, okay, Bushman. He said, now, I'm going to give you an acting lesson. And I said, okay. And he said, think my thoughts. And I went, okay, Bushman. And he said, do my moves. I went, okay, Bushman. And he said, that's it. That's your first acting lesson. Get the hell out of here. I went, yes, sir. <laughs> and so, um, Bruce, so let's I take a call. I've got my these these call lines are lighting up. Do you mind if we take a break? We'll come back to that story. I'm going to get a caller in here. They've been waiting okay. for a little while. Let's see who we got oh. on the line. Yeah, um, this is uh, area code 972. Who do we have here? Hello, 972. Janice. Mm, Janice. Hi, Janice. Well, hello. Welcome to the show. Did you have a question for Mr. Bruce Glover? Well, I have more of a comment. I wanted to tell him how much I appreciated his acting in um, Walking Tall. Uh, my um, My family would gather around to watch it. And it left us an impression. I mean, we would, we all look forward to it. But it was such to have something that everyone, uh, the children, the, the 
Let's just sit around and enjoy it. No, you know, very clean, no bad languages. I mean, you just very good, enjoyable time with the family. And we even got to where we would say, you know, just joking with each other, that don't make us get that stick out. So yeah, we appreciate that you made that. <laughs> I love doing that film, and I love Buford, who we became very good friends. Uh, the first film had to do with the reality of Buford. He wasn't a bully, and he uh, he was a, a, a protector of his family and his territory and not a bully out there with a the club, which the second and third film started to become. They didn't show the real Buford. Now, Buford was going to play himself in the, in the sequel, and we... I did his screen test with him and coached him on how to do, uh, how to act. Because when he walked Mm -hmm. in to Paramount Studios in Los Angeles, he said, Bruce, I'm scared to death. And here's the guy who had taken on every danger in the world, and he's telling me he's scared to death. And I said, Buford, Mm -hmm. that's a good place to start. And I gave him a, a quick five-minute acting lesson, and he listened to everything I said, and he did exactly what I told him to do, and he was going to be terrific in the movie. And then, of course, he was murdered, and uh, uh, it would have been an entirely different sequel if Buford had uh, survived and uh, lived to do it. But I'm glad your family, uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that, that they're looking at the original film uh, where, um, Buford is closer to the real Buford and uh, the second and third film uh, even though I was in it and I just needed to, to you know take the money and try to keep the film somewhat what but by the last film it was just a disaster and uh, uh, I, I, there's a lot of people who want to sell a lot of clubs and a lot of guns with Buford's name on it Buford uh, was not like that. He wasn't a bully, and the club was something that he and I both laughed at as being a symbol of him. He he was a man who was keeping up the family and keeping up the law and making sure that everything was going to be safe for people. And uh, I'm, I, I love hearing your story about your family sitting around and uh, seeing the, the film and, and remembering... The real Buford, and uh, uh, there's a. If you get on my Facebook, you can see a picture of me and Buford together. Uh, he's holding uh, my gun, which I picked up his club, and we were laughing about. It, but he reached out and pulled my gun out of my wallet, out of my holster, and uh, it's a funny picture. If you can find it on my Facebook page, any of you who wanna. Get on my Facebook and find out more information about what I and what I do and what I've done. If you want to see more about me, you can look look me up on I M all in caps I M D B dot com. And if you look that up and then look for my name, you can see uh, demos and footage of me in lots of films, and uh, it's a it's a good place to to store out. Now, 
I should go back to that moment in Chicago. I know. Hang on one second. I want to just thank Janice for calling in. Um, I do want you to finish your story, Bruce. We also have more calls to take. So thank you, Janice, for calling. And let's get back You're to You're welcome. Thank you. And let's get back to your story, your first acting job. Well, there was. Or not. Uh, a lesson. Sorry, I correct myself. I was walking around the school there at North uh, at Webster Junior High in Chicago, where I was going to pick up some more college and uh, college credits, uh, so I could eventually go and get my degree, but uh, and get over my my malaria and maybe pick up my football scholarship. And I noticed that um, when I was doing um, when that woman who wanted me to do the Apex, this was before the Korean War, um, I, uh, after Bushman gave me the lesson, I, uh, the, the guy who owned the act sent us to Florida, Tampa Bay, Florida, and I, I've had a booking there of like two months of, uh, of time doing the Apex, and, um, so I was doing this act in uh, in a strip club in Tampa Bay, Florida, and in those days, strip clubs might also have like a magician working there. They would also have stand-up comics. They might have singers. Uh, the strippers were kind of classier. They could actually dance some of them, and uh, there was so. There was a magician in the club, and in front of a bunch of other people in the dressing room, he decided jokingly to anoint me with his magic wand. He tapped me on one shoulder, then on my forehead, and on my other shoulder, and said, Bruce, you are an actor. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you make that gorilla so believable, you ought to try acting. And another (laughs) guy in the... the, uh, club was a, a singer in the club later he went on to broadway and i kept in touch with him for years um he said yeah you ought to go to acting classes in in new york and i said acting classes there are classes for acting and in a way i still don't believe that there are acting classes even though i teach people how to act or how to get to the re- reality of acting. In a way, learning how to do something is sometimes the wrong thing to do. My slogan is, don't learn how to do it, just do it. Do mm-hmm. it. That's what I've always done. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't learn how to do anything. I just did it. I didn't learn grammar. I just wrote. I didn't learn how to play football. I just had an instinct to knock people down. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. Yeah. Let's take this next call. Um, let's see who's on the line. This is 830 area code. Who do we have here? Hello. Hello. Hi, I'm Joy to the World. Hi, Joy to the World. What did you want to say to Mr. Bruce Clever? Do you have a question? Well, I am. <laughs> Well, yes, questions and comments both. I mean, it sounds like he's, had, he's having an amazing life. Then from uh, there's no limit at the end to 
space and back and art in between. It's amazing listening to all the things he's accomplished. One of the things that I was curious about was uh, it, it appears that basically, and I agree with this in a lot of ways, instinct, is that like almost like manifesting what you want your life to look like? I mean, you, you've done so much. It's just amazing to hear you talk. And I love that you've, you're doing art or you've done art and you're still doing art and you're writing and all these wonderful things. And I guess you've maybe never thought I should do this or that, but just like you said, kind of live it and manifest it and it keeps, keeps getting bigger and bigger. And what a full life you're living. I mean, that's all I have to say. So I guess I'm going back to kind of what he was saying about just do it. It's, it's, Kind of like uh, you, you know, when you just do it, you're manifesting it. You're making it happen. Is that not right, or is that wrong, or what, where are yeah. we? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people do it the wrong way <laughs> instead of just doing it. But the <laughs> feeling should be about how does this feel and how do I enjoy it. So, like when um, when I got into the ape suit and. Uh, felt like I was the gorilla and thinking the gorilla's thoughts, I was just doing it. Throwing around a beautiful naked lady wasn't that bad either. And uh, um, and enjoying uh, the scaring people with my ape suit and all of that stuff. But realities was always around. I remember strip clubs in those days also had to do with criminals. There were criminals that owned the thing. And I remember one mafia guy down there in Tampa Bay, Florida, a very nice man, was complimenting me on a book. I was carrying a philosophy book. Uh, I'm not sure which book it was, but he was obviously was aware. And that same man, man uh, one, one of the nights, I saw him walk out the door to the parking lot, and he was getting into his limo, and suddenly another car came whizzing by, and he was machine gunned to death. Oh, my gosh. And mm. reality is, one of the bartenders said to me, Bruce, don't tell the cops you saw anything. And I said, no. yes. So reality sometimes comes in very harshly into life, mm -hmm. but you have to survive, mm -hmm. and you have to be smart about where you are. You have to know which people are dangerous. You have to know how to let pe some people know you're dangerous. You need to be able to survive, and you need to be able to not uh, put yourself in situations that dumb you uh, is going to get you in more trouble. So I knew that uh, I had to uh, survive all the time. And when I was in Chicago, I, you know, I developed the ability where if I was in a fight, I could quite often knock somebody out with one punch. And sometimes I had to survive uh, an equally good puncher until we could both sign off on a tie. Um, real life is real. And you have to, like, enjoy the reality of it and your ability to overcome it all. So there I was at uh, this school, uh, after the Korean War, still had the malaria, couldn't pick up my football scholarship, and saw an av a thing up there saying, 
there was a audition for a play. It was a Tennessee Williams uh, play, and uh, um, and I thought maybe I should try out for this play and see if that magician <laughs> with his magic wand was right. Am I an actor? So I went to the audition, and the director, who was one of the teachers at the, the, the junior college, said, come back to the callbacks. Now, something in me maybe suddenly got scared of that, or somehow I avoided going back to the callback. And I was thinking of uh, getting some more uh, posing at the Art Institute uh, jobs and stuff like that, uh, so my beautiful body could get, make me money. And uh, so when... Um, uh, one of the days after the callback that I'd missed, I see this teacher coming up a flight of stairs at me, yelling at me, where were you? You didn't come back to the callbacks. I said, no, I got busy with some stuff. And he said, I want you to play the lead. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> so I played the lead in uh, a character named Kilroy in uh, – Tennessee Williams play, and uh, uh, I got into the play, and I didn't have, I'd never had any acting lessons. I just look at the script and look at the people around me, and uh, and I also started teaching some of the people around me, you know, a lot of some, I had only seen acting in movies, so in movies, you had to be real, that's what I thought, and you just have to look at things and talk and ask for this and see this, and I remember uh, um, there was a girlfriend that was a, taught me some dance steps for the the uh, person in uh, in in the play, and uh, so I and I had an instinct for knowing how to do stuff seriously and get people thinking seriously, and also how to make them laugh. And uh, but I remember one of the actors was acting. Bruce, yeah. I, I really hate to interrupt you because I love listening to you. I really do. And we're going to have to bring you back on the show. I mean, I'm running out of time here. I've got about one minute left, and then we're going to get cut off. But I just want to tell you, it's such a privilege and an honor having you on the show. And I think you're extraordinary, and I've always admired, and I've always, I'm always inspired listening to you talk. Your overall approach to life, everything that you say, how your roots run so deep, and I really love you for it. And Listen, listeners, we got to have Bruce back on. We got to do this. This guy is awesome. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to all of you who are listening. I love your messages, comments. Keep them coming. Subscribe to the show via your favorite streaming outlets. Links are posted in the body of blogtalkradio.com show description, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Luminary, Google Podcasts, so we can continue to bring you illuminating and powerful solutions, opportunities, and extraordinary guesses we love to do. Dee Wallace, the mother we all loved in Billboard's ET and the star of Stephen King's Cujo will be here live April 14th, always Wednesday, always 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if you subscribe, you'll be notified in advance. Now that's what I'm talking about. So I want to thank everybody again. Next week we'll be talking about why relationships fail. I promise it will be an illuminating show and one that is so powerful. You and your relationships will forever be changed for the better. So until then, I'm sending magic and miracles 
to all of you. Welcome to Manifestation Mastery on Blog Talk Radio. Life-changing manifestations with your host, Sterling Meyer. Thank you for being on this show. I'm sorry I had to cut you off. I always love listening to you. You've always got so much interesting things to say, and, you know, it's just amazing. It's so fascinating. Your story is so fascinating, and, you know, but, yeah, we got to do it again. I think people really enjoyed listening to it. I'm already getting, you know, messages and things like that from people who've listened, so, um, it's really, really great. So fun. Did you have a good time? continue it. Thank you, Bruce. All right, kiddo. 